Amen. Please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 2. So turn there, just a reminder, this morning is the, the morning that we typically, uh, on a communion Sunday, have our benevolence offering, and this morning our, our benevolence offering will be going uh, to help with the, the crisis in, in Haiti, and we will be uh, distributing our, our funds through some organizations that uh, are committed to the, the gospel, and at the same time uh, committed to providing physical relief uh, for the suffering in Haiti, and so I encourage you to prayerfully consider giving uh, to that ministry for, for uh, your joy, God's glory, and the relief of, of those uh, suffering in ways that we cannot even uh, imagine. Well, uh, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21, uh, please stand with me as we re- read this together. It's a passage that should be very familiar to you, uh, and I'm going to quiz you on it after we read it together, okay? So uh, put your listening ears on. And uh, let's, let's read this uh, together. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And the angels went away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste. And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story of the birth of your son, Jesus, and allow the the truth of this story to overwhelm us, to consume us, to change us. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Okay, I told you I'm going to give you a quiz. Are you ready? It's a 10-statement true or false quiz, and this is a, these are very basic statements, so there should, be, this, there should be no problem in taking this Christmas quiz together, right? 
Statement number one, true or false, you can, you can write this on your notes or you can just think it in your head. Uh, qu- statement number one, Scripture tells us that on the night that Jesus was, bo- oh, you will never hear me say this again, uh, close your Bibles. You'll never hear me say that again, but for the purposes of the quiz, this is not open book. Statement number one, Scripture tells us that on the night that Jesus was born, uh, angels sang to the shepherds. The night that Jesus was born, Scripture tells us that the angels sang to the shepherds. Statement number two, Scripture tells us that Mary traveled to Bethlehem seated upon a donkey. Statement number two, Scripture tells us that Mary traveled to Bethlehem seated upon the donkey. Statement number three, Statement number three, uh, Scripture tells us that Jesus was born on December 25th, 0 A.D. Statement number four, Scripture tells us that after he was born, Mary placed Jesus in a wooden box with hay. Statement number four, uh, Scripture tells us that after he was born, Mary placed Jesus in a wooden box with hay. Statement number five, when Jesus was born, Scripture tells us, no crying he made. Statement number five. Statement number six, Scripture tells us that there was a little drummer boy to greet the arrival of Jesus who played upon his drum. Statement number seven, Scripture tells us that Jesus was born in a stable. Scripture tells us that Jesus was born in a stable. Statement number eight, Scripture tells us that Mary and Joseph were turned away by innkeepers. Statement 8, Scripture tells us that Mary and Joseph were turned away by innkeepers. Statement 9, Statement 9, three wise men, Scripture tells us, from the east visited Jesus in the manger, bringing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. True or false? Finally, Statement number 10, Scripture tells us that Messages covering Luke chapter 2 can only be preached in December. True or false? Okay. Well, obviously, uh, question, uh, statement number 10 is false. Okay. As are statements 1 through 9. Now, I- I'm going to be honest with you. I, didn't, I wrote the, the quiz, and I didn't score 100% on it. Okay. Here's the problem. So often... Our perception of the events in Luke chapter 2 occurs through the lens of Christmas. And so we have this perception of all that's involved in Christmas. And because of all that we think about Christmas and all that's involved in Christmas, we read Luke chapter 2 through all the, the Christmas cards and the Christmas stories and the Christmas cartoons. But the truth is, Scripture doesn't tell us that the angels sang to the shepherds. It says that the angels spoke to the shepherds. You can look at your getting your Bibles if you'd like, if you don't believe me. Now, I'm not criticizing angels and angelic voices, and perhaps they did sing. I'm sure that an angel's speaking voice is much more melodious than my singing voice. And so perhaps they sang, but that's not what Scripture says. Scripture doesn't tell us how Mary traveled to Bethlehem. I can't imagine that riding on a donkey would be all that comfortable for a a pregnant woman. Perhaps she rode on a wagon. Scripture doesn't tell us the date of Jesus' birth. Scripture tells us that Mary placed Jesus in in a manger, but but it doesn't say anything about the nature of that manger. Most likely it was actually a, a, a feeding trough made out of stone. 
Scripture doesn't tell us, of course, that Jesus was silent when he was born. Hopefully he was able to cry. It's a good thing for a baby to do when he's born. Scripture, of course, doesn't mention a little drummer boy. Scripture doesn't even tell us that Jesus was born in a stable. We'll talk about that as we go through Luke chapter 2 here. Scripture doesn't mention mean, uh, nasty innkeepers telling Mary and Joseph that they couldn't stay there. We'll talk about that. And also, uh, the wise men we see visited Jesus when he was in a home in Bethlehem in Matthew, not in the manger. And of course, uh, hopefully, this morning, we're going to, to prove them wrong, that you can't preach messages on Luke chapter 2 in a month other than December. Now, some of those things may have happened, but the fact that Scripture doesn't mention them tells me that at least they're not Luke's main point. And I think it's very helpful, actually, for us to to talk about Luke chapter 2 in a month other than December because it helps us separate the the Christmas trappings and all the things that kind of go with Christmas with what Luke 2 actually says. Now, if you have observed my wife and her relationship with me, you've probably already thought, wow, what an incredibly gracious and patient woman. Let me tell you, it used to be even worse for her. Uh, I'm not the mellow person. I I was not the mellow person that I am today in high school and and college when we began to to date. In fact, I I was uh, so adamant about this whole issue of of Christmas and, and making sure that we get it biblical that when I was in college, I told Whitney, you know, I don't think that I can celebrate Christmas anymore. Uh, I want uh, everything that we do to, it's not just the commercialism of Christmas that bothers me, it bothers me that, that we're not celebrating Christmas even as Christians as Luke chapter 2 describes it. We're getting so caught up in donkeys in a manger that I don't think we're being very biblical. Now, fortunately, uh, I mellowed out a little bit, a lot. Uh, fortunately for me, for Whitney, and of course our, our children are very excited that we continue to, to celebrate uh, Christmas and all the, the trappings that kind of go with Christmas. But my, my point again is, is this. Our goal as we come to Luke chapter 2, our goal as we come to Luke chapter 2 should be we want to know what God is trying to communicate in telling us about the birth of his son. We want to know what Christmas is all about from God's perspective. What is the message that that God wants us to get as we come to Luke chapter 2? And if God isn't focusing on the beautiful sound of the angels' voices, maybe that shouldn't be our focus as well. If God isn't focused on these these gifts or some generic concepts like like love and joy and peace in a very generic sense, if God's focus isn't chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose, Yuletide carols being sung by a choir, if that's not God's focus, maybe it shouldn't be our focus as well. If the story isn't talking about this little lamb nestled up to the baby Jesus and a donkey and the camels and all that, those things, if that's not Luke's focus, God's focus through Luke, maybe that shouldn't be our focus as well. Our goal should be this. What is God trying to communicate in Luke chapter 2 as he talks about the birth of his son? What is he trying to tell us? Here's my suggestion to you. I believe that Luke is trying to tell us this. And this is the statement. This is the the statement that's on your your notes as well. He's trying to tell us that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, in which full divinity was united with full humanity, 
the virgin birth of Jesus Christ in which full divinity was united with full humanity is good news because it provides us peace with God. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ in which full divinity was united with full humanity is good news because it provides us peace with God. This story of Jesus Christ being born is good news because it reveals how you and I can have peace with God, how that relationship with God that's been, that's been torn asunder can be reconciled. What we're going to do is this. We're going to go through Luke chapter 2, and we're going we're gonna to just kind of talk about some of the elements of the story. It's a story that we're pretty familiar with, right? Maybe not as familiar as we thought about it a few minutes ago. Uh, it's a story we're very familiar with. We're just going to touch on some of the highlights of the story, and then I'm going to explore this statement with you. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ, in which full humanity was united with full, or full divinity was united with full humanity, is good news because it tells us about how we can have peace with God. Well, let's look at Luke chapter 2 and kind of talk a little bit about the story then. Verse 1 tells us that these are in the days of Caesar Augustus. It's a decree that Caesar Augustus sends out that all the world should be registered. That's kind of the, the overall world perspective in this, when the story takes place. Caesar Augustus, who assumed power in, uh, I believe, 27 B.C., kind of solidified his power in 27 B.C., he issues this decree. It was not unusual for Caesar Augustus, who had been born Octavian, was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. It was not unusual for him to issue decrees like this. There were several times in his, his administration in which he would order a census to be taken so that taxes could be collected. So he does that here in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Caesar Augustus, this, this word Augustus actually was a title he took upon himself. Augustus means revered or, or to, to hold in awe. Augustus would also refer to himself as, as the son of God. And after his death, those of his, his ardent followers began to kind of continue a practice that had begun in his lifetime of, of deifying him. He was seen as a, as a sovereign God in many ways. So that's the world stage. Verse 2 tells us about the region in which Jesus is born. It says this was the first registration, registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and apparently there had been some sort of lapse between the time that this decree was issued and its actual taking place, the census. Verse 3 then draws our attention to the more local aspect of the story. It says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why did he do that? Because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary's betrothed, who was with child. Why was it important that David was of the, the house and lineage of David? Or how, why was it important that Joseph was of the house and lineage of David? Because of all the things that Luke has been telling us in Luke chapter 1. Remember how frequently Luke draws our attention to the fact that the Messiah is going to be of David's house. He's going to be part of this Davidic, he's going to be this Davidic king that has been promised from the Old Testament. And now he's revealing to us that Joseph meets the requirements that have been talked about in the first chapter. Luke is revealing to us that Jesus, as being the adopted son of Joseph, has the ability to fulfill the promised Davidic reign. Verse 6 tells us that while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Now, let's stop actually here for just a second in verse 4. Notice kind of the kind of the the contrasts that are being drawn. Here you have Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man that the world knew at the time, 
reigning and, and issuing this decree, you have these seemingly the, the lowest people, the, the least important people in the entire world being at the whim of a sovereign king. And Luke tells us when the time comes to, for her to give birth, she gives birth. I think he has kind of a double meaning there. On one sense, it's time in the sense that when it's time to give birth, it's time to give birth. So physically, it was time for her to, to have this child. This Tuesday will be Austin's seventh birthday. And seven years ago from that Tuesday, it was Super Bowl Sunday. And Whitney and I were there in the delivery room. And uh, I looked at the doctor and the nurses, and I said, uh, so what do you think? Am I going to make my Super Bowl party? And uh, they didn't understand my terrible sense of humor. And uh, I was persona non grata there in that delivery room the rest of the time. Uh, now, that's, so there in one sense, when it's, it's time to have a baby, it's time to have a baby. And so it's time for Mary to have this baby. She's going to have this baby. But it's also time in a spiritual sense, in, in God's foreordained timeline. Galatians chapter 4, Paul says this in verse 4, he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so it was the exact right time physically for Mary to have this child. It was also the exact right time in God's eternal timeline for this child to be born, for his son to be born. In both a physical and spiritual sense, it's time for the birth of the Messiah. And then we come to verse 7, and it's from verse 7 that we kind of glean a lot of our understanding and make a lot of inferences of the story of Jesus' birth, but recognize how short verse 7 is. It says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, that is, he is the, the first son there of, of Mary and Joseph. Joseph is his adopted son, Mary is his, as her physical son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him or placed him in a manger that is a feeding trough because, it says, there was no place for them in the inn. Now you say, well, does that kind of contradict some of the things you said in your quiz? No, look carefully. Now that, that phrase, uh, inn, actually refers to usually a, a guest room. And so a person, as they traveled to a city, would, would find a home with a, a large guest room and the ability, they would, would stay in that, that large room. It's the same word that the gospel writers use to describe the, the upper room that Jesus and his disciples met in for the last Passover. And so uh, it doesn't talk about an innkeeper turning them away. Now, did that, that it happen? Perhaps, but that's not what verse 7 says. It says there wasn't room for them in this, in this great room, this, this inn. And so perhaps what happened is they're, they're staying in this large room. They're going to have a baby. It's a very crowded room. There's no place for them to have this, this baby in this large room, and so they, they have the baby someplace else. Now, was it in a stable? Maybe. Does the text tell us it was a stable? No. It tells us it was in a place near a feeding trough. That could have been a courtyard. That could have been out on the street. It could have been in a cave. It could have been a numerous places, right? So what's the point? If the point of Luke, in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, isn't to describe this, this scene of this, this stable and this hay and, and the little donkey and the land, if that's not his point, what is his point? I believe his point is that Jesus Christ, who was fully God, became a man and was born 
in a very humble place, in a very real way. The Son of God became man. And the Son of God, the Davidic king, wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a very humble place and placed not in a palace, but placed in a place where animals eat. R. Kent Hughes, as he describes the birth of Jesus, says this. He says, if we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched. It was scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the, the, the smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenters' hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's little limbs waved helplessly as if falling through face, his face grimacing as he gasped in the cold, and his cry pierced the night. Now, is that exactly how it happened? No, we don't know. But we do know this, and his point is this, and it's well taken. It was a real, physical, humble, scandalous birth. The Son of God, who had experienced eternity in the presence of, of God the Father with himself, who since the time of creation had experienced the worship of angels and the glory of heaven, now finds himself placed in a manger. It's scandalous. There's quite a contrast drawn here between Caesar Augustus, the pronounced king, and Jesus, the the true king. It's interesting, too. Caesar Augustus became... Caesar in a very interesting way. He was the grand nephew of Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar adopted Caesar Augustus. He received his ability to to rule as an adopted son. Jesus Christ, it's interesting, Luke draws our attention to Joseph's lineage. Jesus Christ receives his right to rule as the Davidic king as an adopted son. It's an interesting contrast there drawn between the proclaimed king of the world and the true king of the world. Jesus' birth, the point is, is humble. And it's real. He is a human being, and he experiences the birth, birth into the world as all human beings do. We come to verse 8. We find the first birth announcement. It says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in their field keeping watch over their flock by night. And so here it is, it's it's night, it's dark, and the first birth announcement doesn't go to Caesar Augustus, it goes to these humble shepherds. It says there, it's it's dark, it's night, and then verse 9, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and uh, the shepherds were filled with fear. Common response. When you're visited by angels, fear. Just know if you're ever visited by an angel and you, you feel fear, you're not alone. Gabriel, uh, has, before, has, has told the people not to fear. Is this angel Gabriel? We don't know. I think it's a reasonable assumption to assume it is, but the scripture doesn't tell us for sure that it is. Verse 10, the angel says, what all angels say, fear not, it's okay, calm down. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. What is this good news? Verse 11, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior 
who is Christ, that is, who is the Messiah, the Lord. So angelic messenger, glory of the Lord, telling the shepherds, good news. The good news is that there's, there's this, the Messiah has been born. And here's the sign. The sign, verse 12, is you're going to find this baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, in a place where animals eat. Angelic messenger of God. God finds this important enough not to just send a prophet, but an, an angel from his presence to proclaim the birth of his son. And this angel is saying, the sign for you is not that you're going to find him in a palace wrapped in robes, but in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. The angels, and then verse 13 tells us that suddenly there's with the angel a multitude, that is a, a number beyond, beyond numbering of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth Peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest up here. Glory to God. And then on earth, on earth, peace. Peace among not everyone, but among a specific subgroup of people. Peace to those upon whom God's favor rests. Peace upon those with whom he is pleased. That is Luke's way of, or God's way of saying that this peace, this joy of this Savior, of this Messiah, is for those who accept him as Savior and Messiah. Verse 15, the angels go away. The shepherds decide to go check this thing out. They go. Verse 16, they find Mary and Joseph. They find the baby lying in a manger just as the angel had said. Verse 17, they see it, and then they make known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And everyone they tell, verse 18, wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary, as is her custom, responds by treasuring up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. That's the story. We know it, right? Now let's consider what I believe God is trying to communicate to us by telling us this story. His point is not all the trappings that we've made Christmas. His point isn't that you should, should enjoy giving each other gifts. His, his point isn't how cute barnyard animals is, are. Those things aren't his point. In fact, uh, Alyssa, I'm sorry, can you go back a couple slides a couple to, the, to that first picture? This is a, this is a picture yeah, there you go. This is a picture, thank you, of the site upon which church tradition says that Jesus was born. Do you think we've missed the point a little bit? <laughs> Thanks, Alyssa. Go, go ahead. Here's the statement I want us to think about. The statement I want us to think about is the virgin birth of Jesus Christ that Luke is describing here, in which full divinity was united with full humanity. The purpose of that story is to tell us that it's good news because it provides us peace with God. Let's look at the first part. Let's look at the first part in which the full humanity was united with full, or full divinity was united with full humanity. I want to talk kind of about two things here as we talk about full, human, full divinity being united with full 
humanity. And some of these are taken from a, a man named Wayne Grudem. I was reading through his book, Systematic Theology. And if you want to think more about this, I'd encourage you to, to check out that section of his book. It's, it's excellent. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology on, on Jesus' virgin birth and his full humanity. How do we know that Jesus was fully human? That's the first thing I want us to talk about. And then I want us to think about why it's so important. And this is what we're going to spend the most of the rest of our time together this morning talking about. We'll deal with the last two points at the end. But why do we know that Jesus was fully human? And why is that so crucial to us? Let me talk about the first part first. Uh, why we know that Jesus was human. One is just from the story we, we read. He was born God determined that he was going to, to send his son, as we read in Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time came, God sent his son. That was God's plan, to send himself. Now, how does he do it? How would God send his son? As we think about human beings and, and how we kind of think about ourselves, sometimes we might say, well, what's your, you know, what's your ethnic makeup? I might say, well, I'm, you know, X percent you know, I'm 116th Native American, and, you know, I'm, or I'm a, I'm a quarter uh, Hispanic, or I'm one half Dutch. You know, I, I might think of myself as kind of a, a makeup of different nationalities and ethnicities. And sometimes people's tendency is to think of God like that. Well, Jesus was 50% God and 50% human being. That's a wrong understanding of Jesus Christ. A better understanding of Jesus is this is somewhat analogous to this. If you were to ask me, uh, who whose son is is Austin? Is he your son or Whitney's son? I wouldn't say, well, he's fifty percent mine and fifty percent Whitney's. I say, no, he's he's my son. Oh, and, and he's Whitney's son. He's he's fully Whitney's and fully mine. I say that about all my children. Who's their Who's their parent? Well, I'm fully their parent, and Whitney's fully their parent. Jesus Christ, as he became man, was fully God and fully human being, and his humanity is seen in the fact that he was born. We also see it in, we don't have time to go into all this, but we see it throughout Scripture. We see that he had a, a human body. He, he grew. We see this at the end of Luke chapter 2. He, he felt hungry. He was thirsty. He, he had a, a body even after the resurrection. Luke 24, 39 tells us that, and Scripture tells us that Jesus is going to be fully human on and through eternity. His humanity wasn't just like putting on a shirt. You know, I say, wake up one morning and say, well, I'm going to put on the shirt, not a really great shirt that I like all that much, but I'll take it off this evening. Uh, Jesus clothed himself in humanity. He was fully human, and he's going to remain fully human throughout eternity. He was fully God. He became fully God and fully man. He had human emotions. He was troubled. He wept. He grieved. People who saw him saw a human being. In Matthew chapter 13, as they describe Jesus, other people say, isn't that Jesus, Jesus the, the carpenter's son? Jesus was fully human. Now, why is that so important? You say, great, Daniel. Now I know this doctrinal truth. If I'm ever if I'm ever in a seminary and I have a seminary test on whether or not Jesus was fully God or fully human being, now I can answer that question correctly, unlike your silly quiz you gave us earlier. Why does it matter? In fact, maybe even say this. Look, Daniel, I, I kind of think of Jesus as mostly God and somewhat human, and maybe that's not the right way to understand, but, but who cares? Isn't it better to err on the side of seeing him as 
fully God and, and not, not totally see him as fully human? No, that's heresy. It's a heresy actually called docetism. There's a Greek word, dokeo, which means to appear, to seem to be. And it was an early heresy in the church to see God as fully divine without seeing him also as fully human. Why is it so important to see Jesus Christ as fully human? Let me give you, very quickly, seven reasons I believe it's crucial to see God as, or see Jesus as fully human. The first reason is this. We needed someone to obey God's law for us because we couldn't do it. We needed a human being to follow God's law perfectly because you and I couldn't do it. You can write down Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 19. The end of chapter 19 says this, uh, By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. As I said, as we took communion together earlier, you and I could not be saved unless God became flesh and blood. We needed someone to obey God's law perfectly for us, or we couldn't have salvation. Number two, in fact, you can turn over to Hebrews chapter two if you, you'd like. The next few are going to come from Hebrews chapter two that we looked at earlier. Hebrews chapter two tells us we needed someone who could die in our place so that we could escape God's wrath. Hebrews chapter two, verse nine says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You and I needed someone who could die in our place and experience God's wrath for us so that we wouldn't. The same idea is communicated in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 2. It is not the angels that he helps, but he helps those of the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, that is, satisfaction for the sins of of the people. You and I needed someone to bear God's wrath for us. You and I could not exhaust the wrath of God. God could begin today punishing me for my sins, and I would never fulfill the punishment that was necessary in order to enter into relationship with him. I have sinned against an omnipotent God a God who is righteous beyond my comprehension, an infinitely good God, and there is no amount of, of, of suffering that I can undergo that, that would fulfill my payment for sins. I needed someone to take my place and experience God's wrath, and Jesus Christ did that. Thirdly, we needed a human being. We needed someone who could rule over creation so that we could enjoy God's kingdom to the fullest. It's always been God's plan to have a human being rule over creation. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2 as well, earlier than what I just read. It says in verse 5, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. We needed a, a human being to rule over creation. 
it was important that Jesus Christ become a man, that he be fully God and fully man because we needed someone to obey God's law. We needed someone who could die in our place and face God's wrath for us. We needed someone who could rule over creation. Number four, we also needed someone who could sympathize with us so that we could successfully handle temptation. And this is something that I believe that we often fail to think about as we encounter difficulties in life. And I'm suggesting to you this morning that as you're faced with temptation, the fact that Jesus Christ was fully human should be an immense help to you. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 18 says this, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The fact that Jesus Christ was fully man should give you immense comfort as you go through difficult, trying circumstances. You may say, you know what? God doesn't know how tough it is for me to be obedient in this area. He's God. He's a spirit. How in the world can he know the the difficulties of, of being flesh and blood? And Scripture tells us Christ understands. Christ knows. In fact, let me tell you this. Christ knows the power of sin far more than the power of temptation in a far deeper way than you do. Do you believe me on that? <laughs> Let me read what C.S. Lewis wrote. I think it's exactly right. He wrote this in Mere Christianity. You see, Christ knows how difficult it is to obey in every situation and not sin. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation is. This is an obvious lie. Listen to this. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by resisting it, not by giving in. You find the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it not by lying down. A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. You catch that? A person who gives into temptation within five minutes doesn't know how bad it would have been an hour later, how strong it would have been. He says, we never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to find it, fight it. And Christ didn't have an evil impulse inside of him, but Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full extent what temptation means. Isn't that comforting? <laughs> so you find yourself encountering a, situa- encountering a situation in which you're tempted to disobey God, you have a resource, Jesus Christ, and you can cry out to him and say, Jesus, you know what this is like. You know what it's like to be tempted to, to not do what, what the right thing to do is, or, or you know how difficult it's going to be to go through this trial. And God, I need your help because within me, I have the temptation to, to want to resist this trial. Give me your strength to endure it. Number five, number five, we needed a mediator between God and man so that our relationship with God could be experienced to its fullest. First Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We needed someone that could mediate that relationship between God and man, and Jesus Christ does that. Number six, we needed an example and pattern in life so that we could know how to live 
We needed an example and a pattern in life so we could know how to live. 1 John 2, 6 says, whoever he abides in ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so you and I can look at Jesus Christ and see how he lived. 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2, I believe, that the end of, the end of, or maybe it's the end of 1 Peter chapter 1 or 2, I think it's the end of 1 Peter 2, talks about that suffering of Christ. It's a model, an example for us as we see how Christ endured that, how we can endure it as well says this, number seven, we needed a pattern for our redeemed bodies to give us hope as we contemplate death. We needed a pattern. We needed to see an example of a redeemed body to give us hope as we contemplate death. Have you ever had a loved one die? Have you ever had someone that you care about deeply pass away? The fact that Jesus Christ was just as human as they are and experienced death and rose from the dead should give you immense hope and peace and joy. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15 says if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has, been raised, your, has not been raised, your faith is futile. And he says, verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The virgin birth of Jesus Christ in which full divinity was united with full humanity gives us immense hope, comfort. The humanity of Jesus Christ is essential for us to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Second thing I want to talk about here very quickly is that this virgin birth of Jesus is good news. It was proclaimed. It's interesting here God is sovereign. He's in control of this whole event. People are making choices. We, uh, Caesar Augustus uh, seizes power from Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. He defeats them in a battle. He decides to do that. He decides to take this census. Caesar Augustus seems to be this all-powerful, sovereign guy, and yet he is a tool in the hand of a sovereign God who proclaimed 700 years ago in Micah chapter 5 that from Ancient of days, it's been proclaimed that his, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So 700 years before Caesar Augustus, God had already had a long-standing plan to have his son, the Messiah, born in Bethlehem. This is good news. This is good news that the Messiah has been born because the Messiah is the focus of God's redemptive plan. Jesus Christ is the focus of God's redemptive plan. This last week, Hannah and I were working on a paper that she was writing, and she had five great paragraphs on the planet Mars. I said, Hannah, these are really good paragraphs. I said, but something's missing. And she said, well, it's just about Mars, Dad. Give me a break. Eight years old. No, she didn't say that. I said, you need a, a thesis statement. <laughs> She goes, what? <laughs> you need a thesis statement, something that, that brings all these paragraphs together. You need to have a, a main idea and then have each paragraph relate back to that main idea. Jesus is God's thesis statement. God's entire redemptive plan is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. That's good news for us. Jesus Christ is the thesis statement of Scripture, the fact that a person can come into relationship with Jesus, with, with God through Jesus Christ, is the central theme of Scripture. 
And the question is this, if Jesus Christ is the focus of God's plan, of God's redemptive plan, if Jesus Christ is the focus of Scripture, why in the world is Jesus Christ not the thesis of your life? If Jesus Christ is the focus of redemptive, God's redemptive plan, then it stands to reason that our lives need to be patterned after Christ's life. He needs to become the, the central thesis of everything that we do. Everything is an outgrowth of that relationship with Jesus Christ. That's part of the message of Luke chapter 2. This coming of Jesus Christ is good news. Lastly, because it provides us peace with God. It, because it provides us peace with God. This birth of Jesus Christ proclaims that salvation is available to all. Look again at the text. Look what the shepherds do. Verse 17 says, They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. What was the saying? The saying was that the Messiah has been born. The angels had sung, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's some good news for those with whom God is pleased. The question is, are you being like the shepherds? Are you proclaiming to all those around you about how that peace with God can be achieved? Notice verse 18, that all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Are there people in your life that are wondering about this Jesus you're talking about? They're forced to consider. If you've read many uh, Christmas stories, it's possible to get the wrong idea of what Christmas was all about, what Luke is trying to communicate here in Luke chapter 2. But if you've seen a Charlie Brown Christmas, there's that great scene at the end of it that I believe does capture the essence of the Christmas story. Remember Charlie Brown in frustration shouts out, does anyone even know what Christmas is all about? What does Linus say? Sure, Charlie Brown. I know what Christmas is all about. And what does he do? He recites the Christmas story as found in Luke chapter 2. And it's interesting, the text that he focuses on is what the angels said about Christmas. And it is in that text, this text here, that I do believe that we capture the essence of, the, of what Christmas, what Luke 2 is all about. That the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, in which full divinity is united with full humanity, is good news because it provides us peace with God. It is essential for those of you who have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ to understand that. To understand that peace with God is possible because God has become man, has suffered and died on the cross, has risen from the dead, has faced the penalty of sin for you. It is essential that you understand and believe that message by faith. And for those of us who are believers, it is essential for us as well to understand the message of Luke chapter 2. God has become man. And because God has become man, I have the ability to enter into a relationship with God. And now that I've entered into a relationship with God, the story isn't over. Now I can continue to grow in holiness as I rely upon Jesus Christ, who as a man lived a perfect life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. 
We thank you that we have the ability to enter into a relationship with you because of him. We pray that you would give us the grace to be obedient to you. You'd give us the grace to find our joy and satisfaction in you alone. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.